will be our last message in this series in Romans 5. Not the last message in the series. Don't get crazy. Last message in chapter 5. I think uh, 1, 2, 3, 4. The fifth message, I believe this one is, in Romans 5. So as you're finding your way there, uh, I'm looking over and I see Nathan and Julia. There, there's Phyllis. And, uh, Phyllis, you remember the old... Tony Street, uh, your kitchen table. How many times do you think we played Rook there? A uh, hundred times, maybe 50 times, I would say. Uh, we would play Rook. Some, they, her and Charlie taught Deanna and I how to play Rook. And uh, we would play that sometimes, in, especially in the summer, because we were all teachers at that time. And uh, I had to get up and go to work the next morning. But uh, many a time on a Sunday night, we'd be there till 2 or 3 o'clock. Kids crashed. And we're playing Rook. And uh, How many of you have played Rook before in your life? I'm just kind of wondering. Uh, okay, this is not a gambling game. There was no money exchanged. Uh, I don't gamble much. Uh, no, I don't gamble. I've, I, to my knowledge, I don't think I've ever lost any money. It must Either I won every time or I don't gamble. Okay, And don't worry about some picture that was floating around in the end of April that had me playing pool with some money laying on the table. That was fabricated by our two, by our two elders that were on the trip. Uh, completely fabricated. So, Those of you who have never played Rook, you're saying, what in the world is this game? It's just a, uh, I'm rusty on it, by the way. Uh, it would take me a few hands to kind of catch back up. Charlie was an expert. Um, he could have conversation and play the right strategy at the same time. And I could do one or the other. I could join the conversation or I could do the strategy. And so I usually chose to do the strategy while the three of them were fellowship, and I'm trying to, how can Deanna and I beat Charlie and Phyllis? And we written, it really never did. Uh, four colors, different numbers. Everybody throws their card for that round. Whichever has the most powerful card wins the round. At the end of the game, each couple adds their points together. Whoever has the most points wins the game. Uh, real, real simple. Here's one of the main things that those of you that haven't played in a while, or if you play or you've never played it, here's one of the main things you need to know. There are these things called trump cards. It has nothing to do with their president, but trump cards is when that person throws out, okay, whoa, they threw a 15 or 14. That's a high number. But if trump color is green, even if they threw a black 15 and that person throws a blue 13, I don't know why you would throw that away when they already done that, but if this person over here throws a green 2 because green is the trump color of this game, their green 2 beats their black 15, but I can come back over and throw a green 3 which beats your green 2 and I get the whole pot that round. Why? Because the card I had, the trump card, overpowers, negates everybody else's card. Keep that in mind. Why would I say that? Last week we started, I told you it would be a two-part message in 10 verses, the last 10 verses of Romans 5. So this week's a continuation of last week's message. Last week the title was this, the power of one. Let that go in your head right now. The power of one person. One person has amazing potential. It could be for the good, it could be for the better. And I also mention this, the, more, the higher ranking that person, the more influential and the more impactful their one act. So one person makes a huge difference. We spent our time talking about mainly one side, one man. Spent most of our time talking about Adam. But we started saying there's going to be a comparison of the two leading men of the human race. And these are the two most influential men in the history of the world. They just are. The first one is Adam. And he had a major influence on us. Why? Because Adam, and I'm going to rehearse this quickly, he was our federal head. When our president makes actions and signs documents, those can and usually affect us as a benefit or it can bring a difficulty and a sorrow on the country because he's the federal head of the country. He represents us. Adam represented all of you. But not only that, he was the natural head of the human race. Here's what that means. You and I were in Adam without getting risque, but biologically, seminally, we were in Adam's loins, in his semen. You were there. And that's why verse number 12 is going to say, all have sinned. So here's the power of one. One man named Adam did one act, and it affected every human being that would live. But we finished the message where we're going to start today 
Today, last week, mainly about Adam and the influence he had for the negative. But today is the influence of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also the federal head of the human race and the spiritual head of the human race and the creator. And when God became a man and came to earth, Jesus and Adam now stand opposite. And there's a bit of a showdown with what their lives would do. And so what we're going to learn, here's the message in short, Jesus' obedience... His act, one act of obedience is going to trump and overpower, negate, conquer Adam's act of disobedience. Now, most people will say, and I readily agree, these 10 verses are crucial to the book of Romans, but they're difficult verses to understand. As I pointed out last week, we're going to tackle, we're just going to read verse 12 again, but it's not a complete sentence. Grammatically, it's as though Paul starts writing something and again kind of put it, well, it's, it's just like, and off he goes, it's like when sin came into the world. What is it? And he doesn't really answer very clearly right off the bat because he chases some rabbits. And then he's going to come back around and really in verses 15 to 21 explain what it is. What is like Adam's sin? Something's like Adam's sin before he got sidetracked. So here's what I need you to do. Act like you've never read this before. You've never heard these truths. And let's kind of approach the scriptures with that. And it is a a, a cyclical passage. It kind of goes in a cycle. And each time picks up maybe a new little nuance, a new theme. You're going to feel like it's saying the same thing over and over. By the way, when we start preaching this, we're not going to go necessarily this verse, this verse, this verse. We're going to step back and we won't have time to hit all the points. There's two or three more we could have made. But we're going to try to pick... Three or four, you see the points on your handout, four kind of ideas that we can hopefully get the gist of this passage because it's so important, but it can be a bit confusing. And I can't explain it to you today. I'm going to tell you, I cannot explain it to you today, but the Holy Spirit can use me, hopefully, to explain it. So I need to get out of the way and just let the Holy Spirit start doing what He always does. And this is God's Word, and we'll never get it unless He causes it to come to life in us. Verse 12. Therefore... Just as, here's the idea, it's just like, you know, it's a whole lot like what is. Just as sin came into the world, meaning there was a time where sin wasn't in the world, so sin came into the world, not only the planet, Lucifer had already brought it into the planet, Satan, but it came, sin came into the world, the world of mankind, through one man, and it wasn't Eve, Eve sinned first, but She didn't affect all of us. It was one man, Adam, and that's how sin. And as we pointed out last week, when Adam let sin come in, verse number 12 continues, and death through sin. And so death spread and spread and spread. We said it's as though sin knocked on the human race's main front room, which is an Adam, and Adam opened the door And this odorous fog of sin came in, left the door open behind it because death always comes with sin. And sin and death came and filled the front room from which all other rooms will flow. You're a room and I'm a room. And it just continues as even with the two little boys that we dedicated this morning, they inherited Adam's physical nature and they inherited Adam's sinful nature. And so sin continues to spread and death continues to spread. Verse 12 finishes, to all men, because all sinned. Not just because of Adam's one act of sin, but Adam's one act of sin affected us all so that we were all there, we all sinned. We can't understand that theologically, but that's what the Bible's teaching. Verse 13, here comes a rabbit trail. Paul says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Let me add this, 3,400 years ago. Really, we've had the law of God, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We've had the law less than half the time mankind's existed. Only about 3,400 years ago did the law come on on the scene when Moses received it there at Mount Sinai. So verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. And the next phrase, I don't understand it. But the Bible says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So there was this thousands of years where sin was in the world, but it wasn't counted because 
They didn't have the law. You say, so no sin was counted? Oh, yes, some sin was counted, but a lot of the things that we know, we know now are sin were not necessarily counted against those people. Uh, so then they didn't have to die then, right? None of their sin was, no, no, no. They still sinned, and they still did things they knew were wrong. It was in their conscience. It was put in their soul. Their, 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 it was stamped on their being by God, his moral law stamped on their heart. And so every person sins against that, whether we ever read the Bible or not. The Bible just sheds more light on top of that. So now with me getting too bogged down, let's read verse 13, 14 again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned. So there's the proof. Did those people really sin even though they didn't know? Oh yeah, they did. Death reigned is the proof. It reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning. You see those two words? They were sinning, but whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. They didn't have specific verbal written things written down. It was written on their heart. Now, here we go. Adam, comma, who was a type of the one who was to come. Let's be clear. Adam's a type of Jesus. This is not saying Jesus is a type of Adam. Adam was always a type of Jesus. He's the first Adam. The Bible refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Each of them as the federal heads of the human race. What they do affects us. Verse 15. But. So verse 12 says just as. Verse 15 says. But the free gift is not like the trespass. And I'll go ahead and tell you the free gift. You say what is the free gift? You could say the free gift is grace. The free gift is Jesus The free gift is eternal life. All of those are packaged together. Ultimately, I think if we go by the text in verse 17, the free gift is, you ready? Righteousness. You don't have any. You have no righteousness according to chapter 3. But verse number 15 says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, the power of one, Much more, there's a couple of key words, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So his trespass affected many, but his grace and free gift affects many and abounds for many. I told you it seems a little cyclical. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Condemnation is a sentence of death. You've been found guilty. He brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, many, 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 billions and billions and billions, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So if you miss chapter 4's teaching and preaching, you say, what in the world is justification? Sounds really theological. Justification is where God looks at someone and says, though you don't have any righteousness of your own, I declare you righteous and I'm the judge and you get to live forever in heaven. I declare you righteous. How can you do that? Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, you don't have any, I'm going to give you Christ's righteousness, those people reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then our text comes down the home stretch. Therefore, he's kind of doing it all again, one last overview. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. So that, here's his concluding statement, as, just as, a lot like that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign, key word through the text, grace also might reign through righteousness that was given to us, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Four thoughts today. The first one's very short. I've already kind of preached on it, so I'll be very brief on it. Number one, it just took one. Did you write that down? That's the main point of the text. One, one, one. Thirteen times the number one was used. It just took one. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. God hates sin so much. You say, how much does God hate sin? God hates sin so much that one act of disobedience by our federal head plunged all of mankind into condemnation and sin and death, spiritual death, physical death, with a condemnation, a sentence put over us where we're headed toward eternal second death at the great white throne judgment of God. Why? Because of one act, by the way, I'm not talking about all the sin that Adam ever committed. Please understand, I'm not saying Adam's one act of sin where he partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the worst sin of all time. It's the grossest, most vile sin ever. I'm not saying that. There's been grosser, more vile sin than that. That's the most impactful sin of all time. Just one. Come on. Just, just one time he blew it and we're all condemned to death? Yeah, one. God's that holy. That's the bad news. And here's the good news. On the other side, just as one did it against us, Jesus Christ, one act of obedience of six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. dying on a cross for your sins, that one act is enough to offset all that Adam did. His obedience impacted many for good. Just took one. And I told you we're not going to necessarily go in the order of the verses. I'm going to kind of go by themes. Second thought this morning, second point. Some of you are like, man, this is great. We're on a roll here. We're at this pace, we're going to, okay, hang tight. Second one I'm going to spend just a little bit longer on. But it's important. The law, yes, it didn't fix sin. It didn't fix sin. What's the purpose? Well, it still serves a purpose. The law didn't fix sin, but it still serves a purpose. Verse number 20 says, now the law came in, right? So for thousands of years, there was no written law of God. There was no Genesis. There was no Deuteronomy. There was no Exodus, Leviticus, all these rules and laws of God. All of a sudden, here comes the law. You would think, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think mankind's living life, you know, for thousands of years, their own version of life at that time, be it, you know, 80, 90, 100, 120 years, they're living life. Here comes the law of God, and all of a sudden they're able to read it. You'd think we would say, whoa, God loves those things and hates those things, and so I'm going to start doing the things God loves, and I'm going to stop doing the things God does. Now that I know, I'm going to stop. Uh, Problem. The law didn't fix that. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you, the law made things, I'm going to say it two ways. The law made things appear worse and Let's just go ahead and say it. Some of you are going to bristle. The law made things worse. And I say that and I know good and well. Some of you are like, whoa, man, that's a preacher who's saying the Bible messed things up. It didn't mess things up of itself. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was when it came in, it didn't fix everything. And some may hear that and go, well, I guess God didn't know that and that really backfired. No, God's omniscient. You say, then why would he do that? Listen carefully. Things have to get worse before they'll get better. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you cannot get saved until you first realize I am lost and on my way to hell and I have no way of getting saved. You have to go down, 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 get crushed. I mean, feeling hopeless and helpless. And then all of a sudden, now you're ready to hear the good news. And that's only, only when you do that are you ready and then you will receive the good news. But as long as you think you have an ounce of righteousness or performance left in you, well, we can't save you. Just can't help you. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees. So why in the world would God give the law? Let me give you five reasons quickly. First one's very practical. It's not part of our text, all right? So verse number 20 says, now the law came in. So the first reason, let's write this down, to set the historical record straight. That's one of the reasons God gave the law. Now remember, God created, and I said for thousands of years. So you think about Adam lived 930 years, I believe, somewhere around 930 years. Picture this, right? We had the baby dedication today. Picture for hundreds of years, and then at the end of his life, here comes 
you know, great, 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 literally great, great, great grandson comes up and doesn't really sit in great, 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 great grandpa's lap, but he sits beside him. Can you tell me about the time when you used to live in a garden? Yeah, buddy. There's a lot of this. This is okay. But you see how I am right now? I wasn't there. And it looked a lot better. You see, your grandmother, well, she didn't look like that back then. You see, that? we didn't feel this way. Nothing was dying. It was all brand new. It was fresh and clean. We had this relationship with God. God had to set the record straight because, yes, he had created, and Adam could tell everyone God created. And then his kids would tell their kids and their kids, but, you know, eventually we get things mixed up. Y'all have done these in, in school, right? Where I tell Ryan something, kind of a complicated sentence, and then Ryan tells Justin, right? And then Justin tells Dana, and Dana tells Jonah, and then Jonah tells Gary, who tells Sandra. By the, it, by the time it gets back there, it's nothing like what I told Ryan. Nothing like it. It's very, very different. So here's what God did. I didn't let everybody know how this all started since I was the only one there. And this whole thing, there's a flood. By the way, listen carefully. This is a side note. Most civilizations have an ancient flood story in their history. It's amazing. They usually have one of their people that's the hero figure. I read of one named Nuu. And Nuu built a boat. And he lasted through the great flood. And everybody was dead. Everybody except Nuu. Oh, that presents a problem. How did we all come to be? There's no woman. Oh, no, no, no problem. In their version, Nuu fashioned a woman out of butter. So apparently you ladies very easily come by. He fashioned a woman out of butter, and from them he repopulated the whole planet. We all come from Nuu and the butter woman. That's where he come from. Well, the Bible says that's not really how it happened. And how come we have so many different kinds of people and all these different languages? There was this Tower of Babel. And here comes children of Israel out of Egypt, 1,450 or so B.C., and they're coming out, and they know that Abraham was called by God, and he had descendants, descendants, and descendants. It's Now it's down to Moses, and God's like, let me tell you how you people came to be because you're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so Moses receives the law to set the record straight. It's proof. Secondly, more to our text. Though the law is holy, and we'll cover this again in chapter 7, The law is holy and the law is good. When the law came in, it actually caused the number of man's transgressions to increase. Say, what? You mean God's law came in and it made the number of sins go up? Yes, it made the number of sins go up. Why? Two things happened. It's important that you get this. One thing didn't happen and the other thing happened. Watch. Say, what happened? One thing is, here comes the law... People didn't change how they live. Well, now that I know that God doesn't like that, didn't affect them, doesn't change how they live. The other thing is, once the law came in, people started doing more things because the law came in that were sinful. And you say, that sounds whacked out. So we didn't change, right? But we started doing more things because of the law that we weren't even doing before. You're like, that makes no sense. MacArthur puts it this way illustration we can relate with he writes quote listen the person who reads a sign in the park that forbids the picking of flowers do not pick any flowers the person who reads a sign in the park that forbids the picking of flowers and then proceeds to pick one demonstrates his natural reflexive rebellion against authority there's nothing wrong with the sign Its message is perfectly legitimate. That's the law. Nothing wrong with the law. Its message is perfectly legitimate. He says, and its message is perfectly good. But get this, this is us, because it places a restriction on people's freedom to do as they please, it causes resentment. And it has the effect of leading some people to do what they otherwise might not even think of doing. Hey, the cafeteria. Hey, you, get in that line and get yourself some food. You talking to me? Get in that line and get yourself some food. You ain't my boss. Now they were on their way to get in line and get themselves some food. Because you said it. As soon as they leave, I just get in line and get some food. <laughs> I'm telling you, I promise you, you, you go somewhere, one of these nice places, you put a little sign, do not put big all caps. Do not walk on the grass. Do not touch the grass. 
You put a hidden camera there. I'll guarantee you, you watch it for a few hours. If there's people going by, they're going to go. (laughs) Why? Because we are rebellious. Can I give you one proof? They say there's like 613 commandments. The theologians have counted. We know about 10. Can we give you one? God gave us the law. You know what he said? This was probably mostly new revelation. It's written. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you've watched a movie, if you've watched 20 movies that's been put out by Hollywood in the last 10 years, you know their favorite name, personal name. I mean an actual person. I'm not talking about the title of God. I mean an actual person's name. It's Hollywood's favorite name. If a movie is rated PG-13, whatever, NC, whatever, or R, guarantee you the name is in the movie. What's the name? Two words. What is it? I hear it. Whisper it. What is it? It's Hollywood's favorite name, Jesus Christ. Hollywood must love God. No. Hollywood intentionally blasphemes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I guess they don't know that the Bible, no, they live in a land where we have billions of copies of the Ten Commandments. Billions. Oh, they know. Here's what happens. Do not take the name of the Lord. You tell us, lace it with Jesus Christ. And now they're putting little what is it? Uh, initials. What in the world is that? Uh, by the way, they're not our friend. They don't love our God. They hate our God. You tell us not to do it, now we will do it. You say, yeah, they're really bad. We do the same thing naturally. Very quickly, third reason, why did God give us the law? Here's the main thing. Here it comes. When God gave us the law, it made man more aware of his sin. It was already there. That's sin? And that's sin? Yes. It makes man more aware of his inability to reach God's moral character. I mean, here's what happens. That's wrong and that's wrong. I've already... And here's the conclusion most of us come to. Based on that, well, then nobody could ever go to heaven. Now you're getting ready to get saved. That's when we learn our inability. That's when we learn, we become aware of our sin. Alva McLean writes the following. He says, the law doesn't make man a sinner, but it provokes sin and proves him to be a sinner. Fourth reason, very, very quickly, it has a verse that goes with it. Why did God give us the law? And this is one of the main ones. It points to Christ and it describes Christ. Why did he give us Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Every single one of those books points to this Messiah that's coming. And it points to him and it describes what are we to look for. You see Galatians chapter 3, look at that verse. Don't have time to tear it apart. The Bible says, so then the law was our guardian. The idea is our tutor, our schoolmaster. You know, in, in, in ancient times, if you were wealthy, you would have a special tutor that would come in and train your child until they came of a certain age about how to be a member of the family. And, and again, just basic education. The law, the law of God, it didn't come in to fix all of our sin. It was brought in as our guardian, the Bible says, until Christ came. So it kept pointing to him, describing him. And then Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law says, here's what you look for. Look for this, look for this, look for this. He's the answer. And when he comes, we compare that. And seeing those fulfilled prophecies, it builds faith in us. And then we're saved by Christ. We're not saved by the law. Number five, what use is the law? This is not the main part of this text, but it's true. Though the law cannot produce righteousness in us, please understand that. You say, well, what if I were to memorize the law? You still couldn't live it, even as a Christian. But the law does serve as a legitimate pattern of righteousness for the Christian who wants to please God in their life. Here are a lot of New Testament preachers very much downplaying like the law has run its course. Real quickly, let me say this. Two things. The law is useful in soul winning. I usually try to use it. If you're here today, you don't know Christ as your Savior, let me ask you this. Have you ever in your life, even one time, taken the name of the Lord in vain? Ever one time? You're like, yes. Have you ever, I'm not saying disobeyed your father and your mother, I'm saying have you always every single day of your life honored your father and your lover and your mother in your thoughts and in your actions? Doing what they say sweetly, 
quickly, completely. You're like, no, no one's ever done that. Have you ever lied? Just not big ones only. No, no, any kind of lie ever. Have you ever coveted something that wasn't yours? God hadn't given it. Someone else had it. Oh, the law is useful. It'll get you really, really lost. We need that. But you say, what about after I'm saved? The law is useful. We need to still study it because it tells us what God loves and he doesn't love. And again, just reading it and knowing it is not going to help you perform it. But here's what happens. The Holy Spirit in you takes that and it confirms what he's already been leading you to do. And so the Holy Spirit in us does allow us to fulfill. And now I'm starting to get into chapter 6 and 8. We can't do that this morning. Third point. Third point. And this is a strange way to put this point, but I'm just going to say it out there for you. Here, here it is. Ready? Somewhat similar, but still very different. That's the point. Somewhat similar, but still very different. You say, who? What's somewhat similar, but very different? I'm getting ready to explain. Verse number 12 says, just as, well, it's just like sin. What is? Adam and Christ. But verse number 15 comes along and says, but the free gift is not like. So verse 12, it's like. It's like this. Verse 15, well, it's not like. So catch this. Ten verses. What's happening? There's a contrast and a comparison. There's some similarities and there's some discrepancy and differences. Here here it is. Here's the message. There's the two great men of the human race. We have Adam and we have the Lord Jesus Christ. They're alike in that each one of them is one person and each one of them represents the head of the human race. They're also alike in that each one of them did one great act. He an act of disobedience, he an act of obedience on the cross. He in the garden, he at Mount Calvary. They're alike, one person, one great act. After that, that's where the similarities end. And the differences couldn't be more stark. Very, very opposite you have two you have number one number two in front of you You have name adam attached to the first list jesus attached to the second and if you read this text five times i promise you would see these four words over and over and over you'd see these four contexts see these four words in the context number one adam oh he's attached to several things he's attached to the law adam's attached to sin and because of sin god has to give a law Those are sins. And then God, because of sin, there comes condemnation in which we are declared by a holy, righteous God to be sinners, waiting judgment. And Adam's attached to death. We think physical death, but it's spiritual death, and ultimately the worst one is the eternal second death. That's the one we really should fear. That's Adam. Look at verse number 15. Here's verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died. You talk about backfire. Did you see that? That's the biggest backfire in the history of the world. Adam and Eve are told by Satan, if you'll eat that fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know things that only God knows. You're going to be more like God if you'll do this. And they do it. You know what happens? They become less like God. They don't get closer to God. They're driven away from God. They are now separated and that is death. When God banishes a person, Adam, you and I had this relationship and Eve was part of that, us together, but now you are banished. You're away from me. Get out of this garden. And you are going to die. Death on top of death on top of more death. Big backfire. But if you study the passage, Jesus has several things that he's not only attached to, but he gives. Write these words. Grace. Righteousness. Justification. Again, because of his grace, he gives you his righteousness He then is able to declare you righteous and he's the final judge. Ultimately, specifically, Jesus Christ is the final judge and then ultimately is life. And if you're writing those things down, what you see, there's these two. Look at those lists. See how they exactly offset and that's exactly what the passage is saying. Adam brings law, Jesus gives grace. Adam brings sin, Jesus gives righteousness. Adam brings condemnation, Jesus gives justification. Adam brings death, Jesus gives life. So here's a quick note to write. As bad as Adam's act of disobedience in the garden and its impact, Christ's single act of obedience on the cross trumps Adam. He comes over the top of Adam, negates Adam. We learn this, Christ is so righteous, he's so perfect, so good, that when he gives us his righteousness, his righteousness trumps all of our sin, all of our sin. 
Life in Christ is so powerful. Eternal life ultimately trumps physical death. And we find that hard to believe. You say, Jeff, the end of every story here on earth is people dying. And and they, they go to the grave. And we have a service. And that's the end of it. Oh, no. The Bible says in Christ, life, eternal life trumps death. Only if you have your Bible open will you be able to see this. I want you to look at verse 12. And we're going to compare it very quickly to verse 21. Ready? Watch this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So you got one man, Adam, sin, and death. You see that? Adam, sin, death. Everybody see it? Adam, sin, death. That's verse 12. Watch verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. So you have trilogies. You ready? Adam, sin, death. Jesus Christ, righteousness, life. They offset And this trumps and counters that. But will you look carefully at verse 21? Verse 21 has something in it that verse 12 does not have a counterpart to. I've already said it multiple times. You have Adam, Jesus. Sin, righteousness. Death, life. Verse 21 has something verse verse 12 just doesn't have. It has an added ingredient. What is the added ingredient? Grace. You know the point? Somebody tell me, what's the most powerful card in the game I spoke of at the start of the message? What's the most powerful of all the cards? It's called the, not just Trump. Trump could be any color, any number of that color. The, I heard it, the rook. Somebody gets dealt this bird, this crow. (laughs) I'm not saying Jesus is like a crow. I'm not saying grace is like a crow. All I'm saying is, when you have the rook, no matter, somebody could throw the green 15. Is there a 16 in that, Phyllis? There are no, okay, ones are very powerful and 15, at the, I, I, I'm, I'm rusty. Somebody throws the one and it's like most powerful. Or the 15, whoa. No, if you got the rook, you win the hand if you play it. You got to play it. Oh, it's there. It's in your hand. It's the most powerful. It trumps, negates, overpowers everything if you play it. Look at verse 20 again. But the law came in to increase the trespass. So that's still, man, God gives the law and sins go up. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Listen to me. God hates sin. God cannot tolerate sin. But God's gracious love, verse 21 and other passages, God's gracious love moved him to do what seemed to be impossible. And so we look at verse number 20 and we think, okay, how gracious is God? Listen to me. How gracious is God? Can I answer it this way? You ever seen a 32-year-old man in a foot race with his 10-year-old son? You ever seen that? 32-year-old man, foot race with his son. How fast does he go? How fast does he go? Does he Usain Bolt? If he's watched his son and he knows his own ability, you answer the question. He goes as fast as he, about as fast as he needs to. Now when he races his three-year-old son, oh, come on, buddy. You are so, oh, you beat daddy. But now when he's 10, uh, he's about to be a teenager. Can't be letting him win. How fast are you going to run? Fast as I need to. You going to sprint? I don't think. I don't think. Now, when he turns 14, I might have to sprint. And when he's 18, I tell him how I used to beat him. <laughs> but when he's 10, how gracious is God? Let me tell you. You listening? He's as gracious as he needs to be. See, we build these walls of sin. And we keep inventing new ones, don't we? And the whole human race. And we build the the wall of sin higher and higher. In your own personal life, you sin when you were a child. You were born in sin. Sinned as a little baby, as a toddler, as a little adolescent, as a a preteen, a teenager, 20-something. You just keep building. And the wall of sin just gets higher and higher. How gracious is God? Here's all I can tell you. No matter how high you... And this is not a license. Well, then I'll just go commit sin. That's next week's message. Don't do that. But no matter how high you build the wall, God has an ocean of grace. 
The wall is huge. Yeah, but God's got an ocean of grace that will overcome all of our, all of your sin. You can never do anything where he goes, I can't save that. He's like, how much do you need? I've, I've got enough for that. How gracious is God? I got enough for that. But what about put all of them together? I got enough for that. You see what my son did on the cross? That's enough grace for the whole human race. And that includes you. I promise you. That's what the text is saying. Verse 15. Look at it. Free gifts not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, here's those two words. Much more. Much more. Boy, Adam did a lot of damage. A lot of damage. But Jesus Christ is so much more powerful than Adam. Let's get practical. Which is harder to do? Build a sandcastle or destroy a sandcastle? The, the most constructive... I'm looking at Chuck back there. Chuck could probably build a great sandcastle. I, I may be wrong on that. But I could picture Chuck working for hours on a great sandcastle. And a three-year-old can destroy your sandcastle in about one minute. Which is harder to do, clean the house or make a mess in the house? Once again, you mamas, the most industrious, speediest one of you, thorough, you can spend five hours cleaning the house and you turn a five-year-old loose for 30 minutes and they can straight make a mess. Hey, it doesn't take much, really, come on, work with me. It doesn't take much after a dry month. Anybody can flip a cigarette out and start a forest fire. But now if somebody comes along and puts the forest fire out, now that's a great act. Yeah, Adam destroyed. And Adam started a fire. And Adam made a mess. Hey, you put a loaded gun somehow, it should never happen, but in a five-year-old's hand, a, a, a five-year-old who doesn't know what he has, a loaded gun could kill somebody. Hey, anybody can kill? Who can create? Who can resurrect life? Jesus is greater than Adam. Far greater. Now our mind says, but Adam affects billions and billions and billions and billions. Jesus only affected billions. So that's greater. No, death is flat, one-dimensional. Life is abundant and eternity. And it just goes and goes greater than anything you've ever done. What's our point? Much more. I could say it this way, Christ is much more powerful at saving than Adam was at destroying. Much more powerful at saving than Adam and all of his descendants are at sinning. Verse 17, look at it again there, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more. Here's a great note. This is key. Christ's work on the cross... I've worded it wrong in your handout, but here's the idea. Christ's work on the cross did much more than restore mankind to Adam's original state. You mean what Jesus did on the cross lets us go back to the Garden of Eden? We don't want to go back there. Because if we go back there, there's potential of sin again. What Jesus did is much more than give us a reset, much more than put us back in the garden, the original state, with a chance to sin again. What he did is he gives us eternal life. Jesus does much more. Why? Because he makes us the children of God. We get to, as verse number one, two, and three talked about, we actually are going to be partakers of the glory, unfiltered. No one in this life's ever seen that. I'm going to see that. I'm not going to, hey, Christians don't just exist in eternity. No, much more. We reign with Christ. That's Romans 5. MacArthur puts it this way. He says the practical truth, get this, the practical truth of Romans 5.15, the power of sin, here it is. It's that the power of sin, which is death, can be broken. Let me say it again. What's the practical point? The power of sin, it's strong. Death, that can be broken. But the power of Christ, which is salvation, Cannot be broken. Condemnation. Oh, it's heavy. It's burdensome. I'm on my way to hell. Condemnation. If you're here today living under condemnation, rightfully so, condemnation can be broken. If you're saved, salvation cannot be broken. Jesus better than Adam. Greater. Much more. Much more. And our last point, number four. I have to put it last. It's not the major point, but I've got to put it here. Universalism. Did you write that word? Universalism. It'd be nice. I wish I could preach universalism. It really would be nice, but I don't get to make the rules. 
But universalism is a lie. You say, why in the world would you even touch on this? Look at verse number 18. We have to touch on it because verse 18 is misconstrued by some people. The Bible says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all men, so one act of righteousness, Jesus dying on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. See? Eventually everybody gets saved. Paul is saying universalism. Eventually all of us are going to get saved. I promise I wish I could preach it. I wish I could rest my head in that. And then we would know, hey, well, at least if, if, if the Catholics were right and well, you, you live and you die and you go to purgatory and you burn off your excess sins and then eventually, though, that'd be bad, but then that'd be better than the truth. But I don't get to make up the truth. I just have to preach it. Universalism's a lie. So what is that? It's the idea that eventually everybody gets saved. By the way, if you're banking on that, you're, you're, you're building on sand. You're going to have a horrific realization in the next life if you think, hey, everybody gets in. No, they don't. So where does this come from? Why do people think that? Romans 5, 18, twisting it. There's another. Look at these two verses. 1 Corinthians. I think it's chapter 15, the chapter on the resurrection. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, verse number 18, we just read it, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Look, that's the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Colossians 1, 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. See, he's going to reconcile, he's going to bring peace, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, eventually everybody gets saved. Again, if you conclude that, you've come to the wrong conclusion. You say, how do we know this? When you put the Bible in its right context, hey, I get it. I've sat where you sat, and I know you're frustrated with me. I get up, and I start, and I say, turn to so-and-so, and off I go, and I have some little thought, which leads to my review, right? Why don't I skip the review? He could say four minutes. I always want us to put the truth in the context of the passage we're looking at and in the context of the scripture. It is vital. It keeps you from coming up with wrong doctrine. People have come up with wrong doctrine. By the way, you don't have to leave the book of Romans to find the truth about universalism. Romans chapter 1. I think you'll see it. Romans 1. Here's what the Bible says. So not everyone's going to get saved? No. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold, we conclude, we come to a concluding point in our book here, Paul would say, for we hold that one is justified, he's declared righteous, how? By faith, apart from works of the law. How are we justified? One way, by faith. Romans chapter 4, verse number 5. Some people like to work their way to heaven. doesn't work. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, how? By faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Universalism is not true. Now, let your eyes fall again on verse 18 very quickly. Verse 18. There's an implied word, two words. Ready? So where do people mess up? They don't read in context. They pull a verse out, try to build doctrine on a phrase. But when you put this verse in context, there's very clearly an implied phrase after each time the word all is used. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men in Adam, implied, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men in Christ. Did y'all just hear those last two words? I'll promise you, you check me. You read through the New Testament, particularly start with Romans, Corinthians, and move through the letters, and you'll see that phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's like... This should make you perk up. Those two words in Christ are the key to your eternal destiny. My question for you today is this. Are you in Christ? That will determine where you spend eternity. Are you in Christ? I want to teach this again in chapter 6, but I have to state it this morning. And by the way, you listening? 
You hear that and you say, man, that in Christ, that sounds very, very theological. It is. Can I make it really practical? Ready? You know what in Christ means? It means you're in him. We're in the worship center. We're in the auditorium, 120 Centerville. Work with me. If we were all, you and I, we don't have room for everybody in here, but if your family and my family were in a school bus type bus, we're in a bus. If that bus goes off a cliff, what happens to us? We go off a cliff. Why? Because we are, we're in the bus. Very simple. What happens to the bus happens to you because you're in the bus. You say, what does it mean to be in Christ? Romans 5 teaches this. You and I were born in Adam. What that means is everything that Adam does or has happened counts as if it happened to us. That's why when he sinned in the garden, we sinned. Everything that happened to him happens to us. Because we're in Adam. We're born there. You were born in Adam. Everything Adam did counted against you. That's God's law. He's the federal head of the race. Watch this. But God made another law. And when God makes a law, his laws are binding. I promise you I'm not lying. God made a law. It's the law of grace which says if you want to, you can get out of Adam. You say, Jeff, if I'm in Adam and in Adam there's sin and there's condemnation and there's death, do you got any advice? Yeah, move. Get out of Adam. You're born in Adam. Don't stay there. Move your location. Where? How? Move to being in Christ. God makes a law. If anyone will put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be moved to being in Christ. What does that mean? Just like Adam's action counted against you, here's what it means. This is key. It's not that, it's not that difficult. You've got to work, though. That means that what Jesus did, if you're in him, that means when he died on a cross... For sin and to sin. We'll get into that later. When he died for sin and to sin, you are in him. You're not shedding any blood. You're not being pierced. You're not being crucified. But if you're in him, what he's doing is counting for you and he's paying for all of your sin. You get to be in Christ. And oh, by the way, he doesn't stay dead. He rises back to life. And when he rises back to life, you rise to life. That's what it means being and you hear that, you should say, oh, I'm, I'm in Adam. I want to be in Christ. That's sin and condemnation and death. I want over here. This is righteousness. And this is justification. And this is eternal life. This is the better. I want to be put over there. How do I do it? I'm glad you asked. It's the very last thought. Verse 17. Got to see it, though. We've been talking about Adam's one act, and we've talked about Jesus' one act of obedience on the cross. And all of that, you might have missed the one thing you can do. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Ready? This could change your life. I can't change your life. The Bible says, much more will those, and could I say only those, who receive. This is your one thing to do. And by the way, it's doing nothing. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. And if you'll receive the free gift of righteousness, then you will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam is attached to sin and condemnation and death. Jesus, you're born there, but you can be born again and you can be placed in Christ. And there you have righteousness, justification, eternal life because of grace. What do I have to do? you got to hear that this morning, literally, right now. I mean, I mean in the next five seconds. You ready? After I finish my sentence. Five seconds after hearing my sentence, your eternity could be changed. I know some are not going to like me saying this, but this is how simple it is. You can hear this right here. There is eternal life if I let Jesus Christ give me his righteousness, which moves me out from under condemnation and gives me a de- declaration of God saying, I am justified, I have righteousness. If I hear that, understand it, and I believe it, I trust God's promise, that fast, your eternal destiny has changed. But, but I didn't even bow my head. I'm telling you, if you hear what the Bible says and you put your faith in it, Jesus says this, all that the Father gives me, they'll come to me and he or she that comes to me, here's it mean, God, I'm a sinner. I admit it, this is all true. I, I'm definitely a descendant of Adam. I hear your word and it doesn't change me. I still keep sinning. You admit that, God, I'm a sinner. But I believe what Jesus, it makes sense today. This is really complicated, but I kind of get it. 
I want it. I'm taking it right now. I take it right. Thank you. I just took it. You do that, you're on your way to heaven. I can promise you, that doesn't mean anything. God's word promises you. It's that simple. Would you bow your head? How is it with your soul this morning? How is it with your soul? If I only had this one verse, it's all you need today. God promises. We've been reading God's word. God's word says, much more will those. The question is, is this you? If you're here this morning, you say, Jeff, I am still in Adam. We've all been there, all of us. But not everybody makes it in Christ, but getting there is so simple. You don't have to do anything. You just believe that he does it all. Verse 17 says, listen, much more will those who receive. Will you receive it? To receive it, you say, it's not a physical thing, but if you, in your soul and spirit, will not call God a liar because that's his promise. The Bible says, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. If you'll let him save you, I promise he will. He binds himself by his word. God cannot lie. He promised you as an individual. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. You've heard the gospel today. Hey, let's just be real simple. It stirs emotion in me. It did the day I got saved, but it doesn't have to be a big outwardly emotional thing. I want to invite you right where you're sitting. If you need to get saved today, receive the abundance of grace. Right now. I'm inviting you right now. I'm not even going to necessarily feed you word for word. You just right now in your soul and spirit believe that the God of the Bible exists and He rewards those who seek Him. He'll reward you. He'll listen. And if you just call out, use your own words. Say, tell Him that you're a sinner. Admit it. Don't hide it. Right now, admit, God, I am a sinner. And tell Him you believe Him. You believe that he, Jesus' death was enough. And you believe He really will save you. And ask Him right now to save you. Would you do that? And take Him at His word. Lord, if someone just did that here in our auditorium or if someone does that in the future because they're listening to a recording on the side of the road at an office on a run Lord we're very encouraged when we hear that they do that it keeps us going or if someone here today did that I pray that they would let someone know verbally a raised hand just give them courage don't let them be ashamed or if anyone just became my new brother and sister in Christ let them exalt and glory in your grace and be proud of what you did Christian just before we sing I want to ask you a question heads bowed eyes closed Christian it just takes one just one I believe Sunday should be every week we walk out the most pure we'll ever be in the whole week part of it we should all leave pure but our feet in our Christian walk sure does get dirty just takes one I'm going to ask a simple question this is for the Christian do you have a glaring sin that needs confessed Thing. You had a bad attitude? You done a good thing but for the wrong motive? You had some wicked thought? Have you looked at something this week? Just be honest. Don't tell me. You looked at something you shouldn't have looked at? You've yet to confess it and forsake it? Anybody in here, you've listened to something? Just takes one. You won't lose your salvation, but it'll sure bring distance between you and God in this life.
breaks the fellowship. Anybody here this week, sin of the mouth? Anybody? Be honest. Say, yeah, I've, I've told a lie. I've told a series of lies. Anybody? Gossiping, slandering, bragging. But the good news is one act of confession and forsaking makes us clean. I can't explain it, but Jesus' power is so powerful it offsets all the mess Adam made. Do you have one thing right now that God's, I'm not saying it, God put his finger on it right there. Do you have one thing? If he did, I came to tell you, grace still trumps sin. If you need to claim the promise of forgiveness, God says, if you'll confess, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.